0: In verses 1 to 8 of this chapter, we hear about Zechariah's eighth and final night vision. And then in verses 9 to 15, we see him performing a symbolic action involving Joshua the high priest. As I mentioned a few times before, there appears to be some logic to the order and sequence of these visions. The first vision appears to be thematically connected to the eighth vision. They establish a sort of outer brackets, you might say. And then within the brackets, the visions appear to function as couplets, with the second and third going together, the fourth and fifth, and the sixth and seventh. The first vision, you may recall, was about horses. They symbolized God's active reconnaissance in the world. He knows what's going on, he's not asleep, he's got his feelers out, he is fully informed, and he's working a plan. The implied message in the vision was that there were timing issues at play that the people of God might not be aware of. And that was the reason that things in the world didn't currently look like they expected them to look like. But the vision assured them God was on top of things. He was aware and biding his time. Now this vision, which as I mentioned is related, the eighth vision, is about chariots. So whereas horses represent information and reconnaissance, chariots represent action and force so this vision is saying that god's providential movements are about to be unleashed upon the world hear now the word of the lord beginning at verse one again i lifted my eyes and saw and behold four chariots came out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze let's just stop here for a second Why are these mountains bronze? Mountains are not usually bronze. Mountains are usually gray or black or green, depending upon whether they are bare stone mountains or stone mountains covered in dirt and vegetation. So why bronze? Well, all the commentators seem to agree here that the mountains represent the gateway to heaven or Maybe even they are the gateway to heaven. Maybe Zechariah is seeing them in the same way that the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 12 when he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Close quote. So, Could be the same sort of thing here. We don't know. Is Zechariah actually seeing the gates of heaven or is he seeing some kind of symbolic representation thereof? I don't know. God knows. Regardless, we've got bronze mountains, which correspond really or symbolically to the bronze pillars in the temple mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 7 the temple you remember was built according to the divine blueprint meaning the temple is supposed to be a symbolic miniature of the throne room of God so apparently the throne room of God is entered through a huge set of mountain-sized bronze gates so this is like the opposite of the Black Gate scene in the Lord of the Rings movie do you, do you remember that I've, I've read the books and seen the movies but Of course, once you've seen the movie, you have a picture in your mind whenever you read the book. So for me, when I read this passage in Zechariah, my mind goes back to that scene when Frodo and Sam are surveying the black gate that guards the way into Mordor. The gate is huge and can only be opened by a pair of cave trolls chained to a wheel. Well, flip that vision completely on its head and you've got what Zechariah is seeing here. A massive, intimidating, impenetrable gate... And out of that gate comes a parade of powerful chariots. Verse 2, the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white one goes after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. As I mentioned, chariots represent the switch from reconnaissance to action. Anthony Pedersen says here, whereas the horses in the first vision were involved in surveillance on behalf of the Lord, these horses and chariots subdue the nations as his heavenly army and are an expression of his sovereignty over all the earth, Close quote. Now, the first question the reader is likely to have here has to do with the issue of color is there any significance to the colors of the horses associated with each chariot? The list of colors somewhat resembles the colors mentioned in the first vision, although there we had three colors, and here we have the addition of one more. Vision one mentioned red, sorrel, and white horses. Vision eight here mentions red, black, white, and dappled. Should we read anything into that? Thomas McComiskey says, hopefully, here, since the text assigns no cognitive value to the colors, we need regard them as nothing more than motifs that convey a sense of vibrancy and emotion to the drama unfolding before us. The addition of another color need not greatly concern us if it was symbolically necessary to include a fourth horse in the vision. Close quote. And I think that's the path of wisdom. Generally speaking, as we talked about in the last chapter, if the symbolism isn't obvious or explicit, then it probably isn't relevant. Now, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, there is a vision there that clearly borrows and builds upon this vision. And in that vision, I think the colors probably do mean something. But the colors there seem to be tied to the symbolic function of each horse. So, Revelation 6, 1-8 to eight says... Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Quote. All right, so white horse there means victory and conquest. Red horse there means War, black horse there, means crisis and upheaval, and pale horse there means death and disease. All of that makes sense, and all of it is alluded to in the wording of the vision. So this is obviously an expansion on the basic architecture of the eighth night vision in Zechariah. And in the expansion, the colors are connected to the symbolism. In the podcast series on Revelation, I said that the book of Revelation is like a picture painted with colors lifted from Old Testament canvases. A knowledge of visions like this one in Zechariah is assumed in Revelation, but then the Old Testament background is built upon and significantly expanded as it is in Revelation 6. But just because the colors in Revelation 6 mean something, that doesn't mean we should import that expansion back into the smaller, more focused Old Testament original. Unless I'm missing something, The colors here in Zechariah 6 are just that, colors. And the function seems to be merely to help us differentiate one chariot from another. We are told that the chariot with the black horses went north, the chariot with the white horses went north as well, and the chariot with the dappled horses went south. So in this vision, the Zechariah vision, the colors are about keeping the chariots and their destinations straight in the mind of the reader. Obviously, the sequence and order here is important. Three things stand out immediately to me First of all, a double portion of providential action went north Two chariots are identified as having gone north The black one and the white one And that makes sense because it was from the north That all the chaos and destruction had originally come The Babylonians invaded Israel from the north So this is God saying that he has now visited Double recompense upon the nation of Babylon Which of course is exactly what happened Babylon collapsed from the inside and then was essentially erased from the outside. The Babylonian Empire, of course, fell very suddenly to the Persians under Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. Later, however, when Darius was king, right around the time when these visions were coming to Zechariah, the Babylonians revolted unsuccessfully. And as a consequence, they experienced many of the same brutalities they had previously inflicted upon the Jews. The Babylonians themselves strangled many of their wives and children to keep them from starving to death during the siege of their city or from being taken as slaves by the vengeful Persians. After the city was defeated, Herodotus says that the city gates were pulled down and 3,000 of the leading citizens were impaled upon its walls. So yes, a double portion of God's providential recompense was visited upon the north, The brutality they had visited upon the Jewish people was heaped back upon them in spades. So that's the meaning of the two chariots being sent to the north. The second thing we notice here is that no chariots were dispatched to the east or to the west, only the north and the south. All right, well, the north is Babylon, we talked about that, and the south most likely refers to Egypt. It's difficult to identify anything in our knowledge of ancient history that would correspond to what is being prophesied here, but... That not terribly surprising. The message seems to be that a great recompense is being dispatched for Babylon to the north and a lesser recompense is being dispatched for Egypt. Well, to state the obvious, history tends to record great events as opposed to lesser events. So perhaps Egypt lost five battles in a row or maybe there was a plague or maybe they had five years of bad harvest. We don't know. We know what happened to Babylon because it was spectacular. It was truly a double portion of the wrath of God. And things like that tend to be recorded. The third thing we notice when we study this vision is that the red horses don't appear to have been sent anywhere. Go back and look. The the black horse chariot is sent to Babylon. The white horse chariot is sent to Babylon. And the dappled horse chariot goes south, again, presumably to Egypt. But where did the red horse chariot go? We're not told. Now, that could mean that we just don't need to know. God may have sent them out to do something. It doesn't relate to the concerns of the Jewish people. Could mean that. Or it could mean that these providential actions unleashed upon the ancient Near Eastern world have not exhausted the resources and capacities available to God. He has strength in reserve, you might say. Mark Boda takes that approach. He says any emperor in the ancient Near East would not send his entire army into battle, reserving a significant group for protection of the core of the empire. Thus, the chariot with the red, dark, chestnut horses may have remained behind at the entrance to the throne room to protect the divine portal. Quote. That's the impression the detail made on me, the idea of strength in reserve. I see this as God saying, Trust me people, I have plenty of gas left in the tank. I have plenty of bullets left in the gun. These providential actions, marvelous as they are in your eyes, have in no way exhausted my power or my available resources in the region. All right, so to summarize, the prophet sees a series of chariots emerging from the throne room of God, representing providential action. A double portion of providential action is dispatched to the north upon Babylon a smaller portion of providential action is dispatched to the South, presumably upon Egypt and a reserve chariot representing either an undisclosed action or the untapped limitless resources of God has also been observed. This completes the series of eight night visions and this completes, or at least appropriately addresses the concerns that gave rise to this divine disclosure. The original issue was that the Jewish people were concerned that the nations, though most particularly the nation Babylon, that had abused and oppressed them had gone unpunished. But now, after seeing all these visions and being assured of all this awareness, action, and activity, the people should now be at rest. Indeed, God's spirit is at rest with respect to the north country. That's the message at the conclusion of the sequence in verse 8. And that's the interpretation suggested by the Tyndale Old Testament commentary here. It says, Recent events had been the work of God's spirit, but now that work is finished, and the messengers to the north have set God's spirit at rest. No more remains to be done. I think that's exactly right. In verses 9 to 15 now, we learn about a prophetic action that Zechariah is ordered to enact with respect to Joshua the high priest. It's the first of three symbolic actions featured in the book. We begin reading about it in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Haldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold. And make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the Branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So in summary, Zechariah is ordered to go to three prominent returnees and to ask them for gold and silver so as to make a crown. Actually, the grammar implies two crowns, one made of gold and one made of silver. The likelihood is that there were two bands interwoven because gold and silver don't mix and bond very well. And that actually serves the symbolism because contrary to expectation, Zechariah does not place this crown on the head of Zerubbabel, the political leader who was a descendant of David, but instead he places it on the head of Joshua the high priest. Now why would he do that? Bad things happen in the Bible when these two streams try to cross. Do you remember when King Uzziah tried to function as a priest in 2 Chronicles 26? That didn't turn out very well. Same thing for King Saul when he tried to be a priest. Up until this point in the story, the priest stream and the king stream were not supposed to intermingle. But here they are. D.A. Carson says, That is so stunning that some contemporary commentators want to amend the text. Surely the ruler with the crown is the Davidic king, they argue, not the high priest. Others think this reflects a much later time when the priests picked up more political power. But the truth is simpler. Here, God brings together into one figure both the kingly symbolism and the priestly functions. His name is the branch. New Testament readers cannot doubt where the fulfillment is found. Indeed, they cannot. In fact, this is one of the major themes in the New Testament. Jesus is not just the Christ, the son of David. He is also the prophet par excellence, and he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In Christ, all the streams of prophetic anticipation join in one great, all-encompassing climax. And so surely, this is one of the great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I... I would love to have heard the apostles preach in Christ from the Old Testament. We're told that they did, but we don't always get the chapter and verse from which they did it. But you can bet your bottom dollar that this was one of those passages. In this passage, the prophet puts a crown upon the head of the sitting high priest to symbolize the merger of these two streams. He talks about a branch, one that will spring up, and who will sit as a king, though also as a priest, and who will offer a council of peace. The crown at the heart of this prophetic drama is to be stored in the temple as a reminder, making it very clear that the meaning of the symbol does not rest on Joshua, the actual high priest. He plays a role in the drama, he sits in as it were, but then he moves off the stage. Storing the crown in the temple says, the one who will truly and lastingly wear this crown as priest and king will come at some point later. In the future. And when he comes, he will build the true temple of the Lord, and those who are far off will come and join him in the project. McComiskey says rightly here We reflect the full orbed theology of Zechariah when we view those who are far off as Gentiles who join in the building of the kingdom of God. Close quote. Yes, we do. Because that is the story that Zechariah, through these visions and through these prophetic actions, has been telling. Yes, this temple here in Jerusalem will be built. Yes, but not as an end to itself. It will be built as a promise and a prophecy at its very heart. It points forward to something bigger, better, and beyond itself. It points forward to a person, a branch, who will shoot up and appear from the house of David, but bigger than the house of David, a king, yes, but more than a king, also a priest. He will build the house. He will establish the eternal kingdom. He will give us peace. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the end of the word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first hand on the ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca.